Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fighting on Film. This week we have a Patreon pick. This is a pick by our supporting cast and it is one I am extremely excited to be covering. We are covering It Happened Here, uh, a 1964 amateur movie which sort of posits an alternate future or alternate past where Nazi Germany successfully invades Britain and we get a view of this world through the protagonist's eyes. It's an absolutely fascinating film. And the fact that it's an amateur picture just adds to this really interesting sort of feel to the whole thing where it's impressive what they've achieved. So Rob, you want to take us through the plot and then we'll dive right in. Sure. So to give you a little brief outline of the plot, the movie starts with a sort of Dad's Army-esque map of Britain and the French coastline. Like a reverse Dad's Army. Yeah, like a reverse Dad's Army. Yeah, the, the you know, those German, those pesky German arrows finally cross the channel. Um, <laughs> so it's the whole the whole premise is um, after Dunkirk in 1940, the Wehrmacht invades. They're fought off for a little bit, but then eventually through sheer determination and you know a battle we don't see they finally win and they occupy the country so the film actually picks up in 1944 when the uh, the british resistance movement has died off in the four years previously but now the americans are in the war they've stationed their fleet off of ireland and they're feeding the resistance with kit and men to sort of try and poise for some sort of invasion um, but that's getting ahead of ourselves as Matt said, it's England under occupation, and you see it through the eyes of our main uh, character, uh, Pauline, who is an Irish nurse. And she is played by Pauline Murray, an amateur actor. 
who I think she wasn't she the wife of one of the members of the production cast crew? Sorry. Yeah, she was she was the wife of uh, a friend of Kevin Barlow, one of the directors. Sorry, Kevin Brownlow, one of the directors, who it was suggested that she'd be great as as the as the lead. Um, way before Brownlow and Molo had a sort of idea of what the, the lead was going to be. I think initially it was it was going to be perhaps um, a German Air Force officer or something like that initially, like very near the beginning. This film had like an eight-year production yes, because of its amateur sort of aspect. In his book, um, How It Happened Here, Kevin Brownlow, like he jokes, he literally jokes that the film took longer to produce than the war took to fight. There's a there's a great little um, video on on YouTube at the moment as well, where he says exactly the same thing. Yes. Original footage from behind the scenes, and he he, he provided like a, a commentary track. It's great if you if you get a chance to look it up on online. This is a super ambitious piece made by a young man who was 18 at the beginning of production, and he had this vision. Where he wanted to create sort of an alternate future where the Nazis had, had taken over Britain. This idea came from he was walking through through London on the way to work one morning, and he saw this black Citroen pull up outside of a bakery, and two Germans jumped out in like in one was wearing like a long leather black coat, I think he says, and he calls back to him from the door of the bakery, and this whole scene he said looked like something out of a war movie. Right, but the but the situation it was in, you know, central London, they're running into a you know an English bakery. It twigged this thought of of this alternate sort of what if scenario. It's it sort of grew from that, and Brownlow had been a film collector. He made one short film before this um, called I think it's The Prisoners, which is an adaptation of uh, a story from the Franco-Prussian War, War okay, which he set in World War Two. So with very little sort of background and experience, he decides to embark on this huge project and he begins filming and he's, he's very precocious and he manages to sort of set up filming in like central London in Trafalgar Square with people in Nazi uniforms walking around. Yeah. But he's struggling to find a uniform, kit, stuff that looks authentic. Um, and he, he happens to, to meet uh, Andrew Mullo, who was at the time, 16 so Molo's just 16 at this point so you've got these two young men who are collaborating on this this film which eventually turns out to be hour and 40 long something like hour and a half about hour and a half yeah and it's just the production value yeah i think the film all told over about eight years was made with you know their own money with loans and with grants mm. from like the bbc and the british film um institute etc um, and eventually the, the United Artists who came on board yeah the, the, the film was completed um, on about 7,000 and then United Artists came on to distribute so they didn't fund any of it so they just picked it up once it had been made so the best source for where I'm getting all of this from it is is um, the book that Brownlow published in, in 68 which is how it happened here and it's a fascinating read about how he created this film loads of like behind the scenes little tidbits of information so yeah so we have pauline murray and the only other star of note in the film is sebastian shaw who you know been a bit a fairly big star in the 40s and um was a stage actor yeah and famously he was he was darth vader yeah anakin skywalker wasn't he in return of the jedi and played his force ghost but that's yes cut he out did until he was replaced shot by hayden christensen in the yeah the 15 billionth re-release or whatever. Yeah. 
at the beginning of the film, it literally says it, they thank a cast of hundreds and they, they dragged in people. They, they dragged in an entire village, New Radna, of, of extras to play civilians. The amount of people they drag in off the off the street. They said they get they'd get German tourists in to play the the characters. They just grab anyone they former could. German uh, former German officers, even members of the SS were involved. It's amazing, um, like ad hoc filmmaking that you just don't really see anymore. Or if you do, you don't. It doesn't get to the heights that this film does. No. Well, we love these amateur sort of like pictures, don't we? And we and you know we've covered them before, and you get that. They're taking just people out of the pubs and and grabbing yeah. bystanders, anyone who looks like a German officer and looks exactly. like they fit into the uniform they've got. They 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 drag them out and get them kitted up. Yeah. Um. They they even like drag a load of lads from a borstal, which is like a young offenders school, to be some of the extras for the surrender scene at the end as German soldiers. It's absolutely fascinating. We'll go into some more of it later on, but I mean, even Peter Watkins pops up. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. war game fame yeah. and Culloden and all those great movies we've already covered. Which this film has feels very similar in the way that it's filmed. There's a vibe to it, and this, some of the cinematography looks so similar to what Watkins mm. later becomes renowned for. So the most like those sharp close-ups, yeah, it's a couple yeah. of them, and the scuffles and the and the motion of you know the scenes where action's going on, and how you see the movie through someone's eyes. Mm. it's hard to say it's not a pov film it's not shot as a pov but but you feel like you're you're like hovering over the woman don't you you feel like you're hovering Mm -hmm. over poorly and you're not you know you're you're seeing it from an angle you know nothing in this film is i don't think presented in a positive or a negative light no well even even with some of those um the interviews with the nursing staff from the hospital at the end oh yes that's very sort of like watkins vox pop yeah it is stuff isn't it but it's weird because in the book that Brownlow doesn't actually say that Watkins had any input on direction or, or camera work. He was doing set dressing, costume coordination, um, wrangling extras. He was doing a bit of makeup work. So how much input he had and how much he learned from you know, being on this production, who knows? Fascinating though. Really interesting. So yeah, I, I guess we can just talk a little bit about the film and how it progresses and the, and the plot. And then we can jump into the alley tally because damn, this film has a surprising amount of stuff Gosh, to talk about does, as well. doesn't it? Yes. Yes. So as Rob was saying, we follow Pauline, um, who is a nurse and the film begins in a remote English village. The, the Germans are on the run. The partisans are rife in the countryside. And it starts with, she's trying to get on a transport convoy to London, but the, the trucks are full. So her and a group of their friends are left behind and they find themselves back at home in their house. And during the night, the partisans arrive in the village as well as some German forces. And there's a bit of an ambush of the German convoy and a lot of Pauline's friends are killed. Um, and there's it's it's a great sort of nighttime shoot where it's just chaotic. Yeah, you don't, you've got a clue. I mean, I think it might be down to the, the print that we watched. Yeah. But like, you don't have a clue who's shooting at who or who's getting hit or what's happening. And then Pauline just makes it out. There's like a, 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 like a muzzle flash lit face of one of the women as she crumples to the ground. German officer buys it. And apparently according, according to the book, that shooting from the top of the house, which you can just barely see in, in, in the print, you just make it out was uh, Molo on the roof with a rifle. And apparently everyone in the village went mad because they didn't know what was going on. 
Oh, wow. And then from there, it sort of follows Pauline into London. She makes it into London on her own. Um, and then we get this really fascinating sort of progression of her becoming involved in the IA, which is sort of like a, a fascist paramilitary They're called Immediate Action. The Immediate yeah. Action Organisation. And they use the the British Union of Fascists Flash logo that mm. mostly and his crew were using um, in the 30s. Um, so I assume in the narrative of the movie, like they're the next step. You know, they're, yeah. they're, the, they're the ones that, they're sort of like the puppet government. Definitely. And did you spot the the, the frame picture of Mosley next to Hitler in the in the IA offices uh, office? It's so we would assume again. Very clever. Mosley is prime minister or whatever they're calling it now mm. in the narrative, but he's not really mentioned that much. To be fair, no, they not don't. Not by name, him. anyway. Not by name, no. Um, but yeah, but just just that little section of of um, Pauline getting into London because she mentions that she's not been to London for many years. Um, you know, she's been living in the countryside, I, I think, and, and living yeah. in Ireland, perhaps. Um, and yeah, you just see how things are different through her eyes. And it's little things at the start. You know, it's like a policeman walking down the road with a, a German military policeman. Yeah. Um, just subtleties, you know, the policeman's armed, which is, which is another little thing that I didn't really pick up until the second viewing. Signs everywhere saying like, you know, street parties are forbidden. You know, there's barbed wire in places. There's propaganda posters. Po- yeah, exactly. Like ubiquitous, like you know, propaganda posters, things, things like that. The and, and signage is like Germanized as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just really little things that it doesn't need to batter you over the head that that England is or London is in under occupation, because we're four years in. Mm, mm. It's the subtlety of everything that I really enjoyed seeing, and how it was dealt with. And then when she clearly looks into that which is clearly a ghetto in london yeah we get that sign where, where it's, it's like Juden forbidden etc and it's yeah. all in that sort of instantly rec- recognizable like nazi font the german yes. font. Like gothic gothic yes looking. the gothic yeah. font and it's all that was all hand painted according to the book he and mollo just literally like hand painted all of those from photographs and mm. and books so the amount of research they must have done is pretty impressive yeah, well, Molo obviously goes on to be a military advisor, historian in his own right, written a dozen books about military uniforms and, and German uniforms. So, you know, everything for a 16 year old to get it that spot on is mm. very impressive as well. You know, he's doing his his research is top notch. Yeah, it's it's impressive. It stands up really well. And that's one of the things, you know, when when um, Brownlow shows him some of the first footage he'd filmed without Molo. Um, before he came on board, he, he he was he just criticized the, the, you know, the uniforms and how they were being worn and all this. Well, I love the alley bits in the book. <laughs> I know, right? There's bits in the book where there's on-set discussion about how you would wear a holster. German officer would wear his holster. Right. Like a, a guy that used to be in the Luftwaffe was like, no, we would wear it at the back, and like an an S, a Latvian SS officer was like, no, we wore them at the front they're all mm. sort of like disagreeing with one another and and it's just that level of sort of attention to detail that's fascinating and having those you know those kind of individuals on a set of course is, yes you know very interesting but mm. that's something we'll talk a bit more about um when we come to some of the other scenes i think that's that scene where pauline is walking into london and it's the desolation of the bomb sites which is mm. building sites still in in 
uh, the late 50s, early 60s, her despondency in, in that desolation, you know, where she sat on the corner yeah. um, and there's some kids playing in the far off background. That's when the film sort of begins to hit you. Mm. It's all very familiar, but different. Mm. And that's yeah. the beauty of it. I think you're getting those quintessential sort of British English scenes mm. with stuff that is quite clearly German yeah. from that period. And like the amount of like Nazification of things as well. Mm. You know, areas that are going to be more populated seem to have more propaganda in them and mm. signage and iconography and symbols. Absolutely. And obviously just, just normal streets and things like that just don't. And I think it, it, it's that little touches as well. You don't have to have like, you know, banners and flags everywhere because obviously if it's not important to the occupying forces, they don't, they're not going to pay attention to like, you know, King Street or whatever, no. you know, pick a, no. a generic street number five. They're not going to give a shit. They're going to focus on what's important to making the, their regime work rather yeah. than like, oh, does every street have signage and is, you know, is, is a propaganda poster up here? As I said, it's the subtleties for me that, that sort of really work. To Yeah, yeah. It's the inclusion yeah. of, of getting a bus and having sort of a little bit of Nazification on there and then just a standard advert from the period. Um, getting period vehicles from, from collectors of of older vehicles mm. so like some of the um the newsreel footage takes collectors cars from like the 30s and they're seen driving past yeah, yeah. just the fact that they went we could get that and they you know they included mm. it it's, it's, it's and asking mad. the extras to bring it along 40s clothing if they have any yeah from back in yeah. the day it's all it's all little things like that you know i think like a an amateur filmmaker has to do that because they have to think on their feet and it just and because it's all people's own clothing and things like that, everything just looks natural. Mm. You know, it's it, it, that that's the word. Everything looks natural. Nothing feels forced. And that, I think that's another massive feather in this film's cap that it does. It's all very uneasily believable. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. It just it creates that mise en scène, and a lot of the um, the sort of uh, inspiration for that touches of Nazification within the the, the, um, the street scenes, etc., comes from um, a book they got their hands on of photographs and, um, well, it's official photographs and, and snapshots taken by civilians. It was published in 45 of, of Paris. Uh, it was published by the, uh, I think it was published by the, uh, the French Liberation Forces. And it was, it, it's a, it was a book all about Paris occupied. Oh well, they so go, they then. managed to recreate little bits of signage yeah. and what yeah. posters look like and the general things that the, the Nazis did when they occupied a place, mm. which it's all again, based in just, fact, isn't it? That's, yeah, it's just that's very impressive thing. that they managed to get that material. So I think because we'll we'll talk more about certain things as we go on. I think maybe we should just dive into the alley tally. Absolutely, fantastic. It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. So, Matt, I, I understand today you're going to talk about the German, the German kit. Yeah, there's plenty in here, isn't there? It's chock full. Um, the film begins with this really impressive sequence. Now, when you watch that introduction at the beginning of the film with the, the battle scenes, did, did you think that was filmed or did you think that was possibly like some newsreel that they used or 
So, right, I wasn't too sure. Mm. On a second viewing, yeah, it's obvious it's for the movie. You're right, there are certain bits within the film that don't feel like they were filmed for the movie. Yeah. So, like, I'll talk about it in my favourite scene, but there's a there's a film they see in the cinema in London that the main character, the main character watches mm-hmm. that just doesn't feel like it was made for the movie. It feels like it's been dug out of some Bundesarch of the Bundes archive or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that initial sequence with troops just running around and trucks driving, it, it does feel very much like captured footage, doesn't it? It does. So it's got that bombastic German marching song going over the top of it with an announcer voice. So it's very much out of like the, the classic. Um, it's like it's from the the, the Deutsche Wochenschau, uh, like their own newsreels. Newsreels, exactly. On, on first watch, because I've been looking forward to doing this film for such a long time. So it's been on the yeah. list for quite a while. So I was so glad when the patrons picked this film. I was disappointed when, when Hornblower lost, but I was pleased when uh, it happened here once. <laughs> it's becoming a running joke that Hornblower just doesn't get voted for. <laughs> it's... It was so close this time, Rob. I was I was so angry. It's getting there. Yeah, <laughs> Peck was pipped at the post yet again. When I first watched it, I thought, "Is this this is newsreel?" Mm. And then when a Yag Panther rolls by, you're like, "Jesus, this yeah. this can't be this can't be stuff that they shot themselves." Where the hell did they get a Yag Panther? And then we get a half track launching rockets and a building exploding, and it's at that point you go, "No, there's no way that." Two young lads, which I didn't even know about at this point, you know, when I was watching it for the first time, that there's no way that an amateur film can be blowing up a building and there's a Yag Panther rolling by and all these lads. There's about six different, you know, scenes where it, it's just different German kit going at it. It's yeah. insane. Yeah, yeah. And to realise that it was, you know, filmed in Wiltshire, Mm. With a bit of help from the tank museum, it's yeah, incredible. Tank museum giving help, which is yeah, just lend these teenagers at our Yag Panther. Yeah, you know. So the way that they managed to do all that was they they um, they Molo um, was was quite uh, friendly with uh, Mark Dinley, who was a part owner of the Bapti Film Armourers. Okay, um, and Dinley offered to let them come down to his farm in Wiltshire and blow up one of his tenant farmers outbuildings. Well, as you do. Yeah. Um, and he said, I'll, I'll let you use the kit and the vehicles that I've got. Um, yeah. And true to his word, they filmed a few weekends there. Um, so that brilliant opening scene where they're attacking like a farm building in the partisans, like letting rip with a brain gun out the window. Really well um, done set piece for it. It's incredibly good. Yeah. Um, which is all, it, it surprises me, honestly, that they managed to get footage that good so early on when they were still, he was still learning how to make a film. It's really yeah. interesting that they managed to, to get all these little cut bits. So I think initially they expected they were going to do more of a big set piece where it would all flow. Mm. But I think the fact that it cuts in that newsreel manner really yeah. works quite well. No, I like it. It's, it's very frantic and... And, it is. and disjointed and it you know it feels like you know as you say foot like combat footage so we get things like mg34s k98ks there's an mg42 yeah um and then there's more interesting stuff like there's a, there's two scenes with panzerfausts mm. um which you wouldn't expect to see there's there's a a, a 
Racket and Werther. Um, yeah. Racket and Werther 43, which is sort of like a, a, a wheeled rocket launcher that was a precursor to the Panda Shrek. Yeah, that comes right in the end, doesn't it? It's just at yeah. the side of a road. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's sort of there. Um, there's a, a scene where there's a 25 millimeter Hotchkiss anti tank gun firing. Mm. Um, there's mortars. There's, it's just the list goes on. There's MP40s, and there's even in some of the behind the scenes stuff that I don't know whether made it into the film. There's an Emma EM, EMP, which oh, is wow. a, um, like a, a very interesting submachine gun, which was mm. sort of a second line weapon. But it makes sense historically when you think about it, because obviously everything that's in this movie, um, everything that's British can't exist. Yeah, no stents. No stents, no peers, no number four Lee Enfields, nothing yeah. like that, because we just don't have the time to make them because we've, we've been invaded and occupied. Exactly. So everything that is in it, for me at least, from Molo's point of view, is a conscious choice to include. So it begs the question of, okay, so the Germans still create a Jagdpanther, so do they mm -hmm. still make the SG-44? Do they still make the Tiger tank? Because they're still fighting the Russians. I reckon they would. So I reckon a lot of German sort of weaponry would have been the same because they're fighting on the Eastern Front. And that was the main driver for such a long time where, you know, yeah. North Africa and Italy were sidelined. Um, yeah. And for the bulk of the war, they, they, were, they were fighting on the Eastern Front. So they were creating weapons for that front. So yeah, Jagdpanthers, yeah. um, SG-44s, which aren't in the film, but you know, you got to remember that these are anti-partisan forces. These aren't frontline guys. They're lucky to have the Jagdpanther. Things like that could be still on the back burner. I just think it's very yeah. interesting that, that, you know, they might create something as grand and big and expensive as a Jagdpanther and they send it to England to be like a show of strength. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I assume that that gets that's, there. Yeah, that's how I'd read it too. I think, mm. I think you're right there. Because I also assume within the film's narrative that they're also fighting the partisans in Eastern Europe and the resistance in France as well. So I assume yeah. the Nazis, also, the, the, the German war machine has all these little hotspots they need troops in yeah. as well. And they're gearing up to fight America if they come in as well. So it's exactly. like... Exactly. Well, the seven fleets off, off Cork, isn't it? It says at the beginning. Um, the amount of kit in it is just insane. I looked at the um, the British Liberation Army, so we're we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. But mm -hmm. you, know, you can watch this film online; it is it's findable. Um, so later on in the film, we find out that the Americans have made some sort of landing in the east, uh, east coast of Britain. You're not quite sure where, but they're coming up sort of through Gloucester Way. It's all sort of a little bit yeah. as as and when it needs to be. My head cannons is they landed in Wales. Yeah, I think they land in Wales. Yeah. You know, possibly. Maybe, you know, maybe try plenty of plenty of beaches in northwest Wales that make great yeah. great landing beaches. Maybe they try and crack Swansea as a port. Who knows? It, it never gets um, bought up. Depends who's in command. If if it's if it's MacArthur that's in command, then obviously he would he would hit yeah. Bristol and, and shoot across to to uh, London. To try and nuke Scotland off the face of the map, wouldn't he? If it was MacArthur, <laughs> um, <laughs> the British Liberation Army come in, and I think that's just great. That's you know, I love things like alternative history like that. It's great, I think it's brilliant. When you see them, you only see a few glimpses of them, really. But they're all dressed like sort of Tito's partisans. They've all got like the belts and the leather jerkins and cap comforters. And they've got like a communist flag too. That's another really interesting layer. So I assume those, there's a truck of communist troops that come, not troops, sorry, a truck of communist partisans that come in at the end and absolutely massacre a lot of German prisoners. 
But I'm thinking, okay, so are they a separate faction then to the American mm. and the, the British Liberation Army? So then I yeah. got a whole sort of Spanish Civil War vibe from it where you've got yeah. the communist sympathisers, the anarchists, the pro-Republican, maybe the pro-monarchy as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a, um, a set of wargaming rules that are about the British Civil War. So I'm like, I'm thinking now, oh, okay, so after this movie then, <laughs> do the Germans get deposed and then there's a British civil war because of all these separate factions? Yeah. So is it very interesting? But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, you've got you've got um parallels in in the resistance in France. There were communist groups of resistance as well, weren't there? Yes, of course. I, I, I didn't think of that till just now. Um <laughs> so but yeah, you've got um American officers. There's an American officer that you see, he's wearing M43 jacket, um, which is nice because that's for me, then that just proves that the Americans are gearing up for a war. They're still making all the kit. British forces are sort of arming themselves with whatever they can find. So mm. there's an M1928 Thompson with a drum mag. There's captured K98s. There's captured MG42s. That cloud of blank from the MG34 when he opens up on the Germans, that partisan. Yeah, God, he goes for that, it, doesn't he? The cloud of smoke from those that blank firing is. <laughs> and he's sort of like squatting and sweeping them and he's loving it. They're having a blast, isn't he? He's giving it a bit Literally. of Tony Montana, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just like aesthetically, I like their look. You know, I like the sort of bits of battle dress here and there, bits of webbing. Mm. You know, it's quite interesting. Yeah, and also as well, another thing, and it's a, it's a fighting on film staple, there are Bedfords in it. Of course, um, I was waiting. Yeah, Bedford OY, I think, is in there. Um, the, the the partisan troops, anti-partisan troops turn up in. But I think another thing as well, that's good because that shows them using captured kit and just using yeah. what they've got. Because obviously Absolutely. that's what they did. Well, the Hotchkiss 25 mil was captured. That would have been captured. Because yeah. um, a, a load of those were taken over by the BEF. The only thing I wished for was like a captured Bren gun carrier. Ooh, yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah, that would have been good. Surely the Tank Museum or or Mark Dianley could have lent him a yeah, brain gun carrier. Maybe not. But it's just, it just as I said, you know, the kit in, in it and the attention to details within the, the separate factions that turn up at the end is just impressive. Again, it it just echoes what we said. You know, everything is everything. There's a purpose to everything, and it just enriches the film. It does. So when uh, Pauline gets to the aid station at the end, the the guy that meets her is is. Um, his shoulder titles, uh, you know, got him tabbed up as Royal Army Medical Corps. That's it, yeah. Um, yeah. And when when the chaps are in a pub, I think it's a pub that they're, they're at, and uh, there's a Royal Engineer that arrives to ask, um, you know, is there any anyone, you know, any medical personnel that we can use at the front? And she's, they, they mentioned that Pauline's been captured. He's he's a Royal Engineer. And my head cannon's like, oh, they've just blown that that railway line. It's his expertise there. He'll, he'll have he'll have laid the charges on that railway line yeah. that they've just blown that Pauline was travelling on. Just clever. So my actual pick this week for my genuine valley pick. Good, I was going to ask. Yeah, was the the propaganda posters that you see? They just add a, a really believable element to the movie. Mm. So when Pauline makes it, she, she's going to decide. She's decided she wants to work as a nurse because it's what she's done. You know, she starts her profession. Yeah. So she goes to the uh, IA Labour Centre to get some work. Yeah. Um, and she goes into the offices and behind the main desk, there's a poster for, you know, join the English um, division of the SS. Yeah, the British Legion. And harking back to that little scene you were talking about at the end, the surrender that those lads have got, uh, get this nice little tight close-up of um, Black Prince uh, Legion unit insignia, yeah. which was a real thing. 
Exactly. Really, really nice addition there. They've got their own Union Jack flag badge that they wear underneath the eagle. And then there's one that's like Bolshevism is death. And then there's one that the IA have, which is Union is Britain's strength, Mm. which I think is just beautiful. Like someone's really thought of what what a mass fascist British movement would have as their slogans and their posters. There's Labour posters where it's work in Germany. And there's one that has bombs falling and it, it looks very sort of um, uh, very much in, in the style of both German and British war posters. Yes. And it's it's uh, about bombing Germany or German bombs bring death. That's like it, that. yeah. So it's, um, it's, Sorry, American bombs bring death. Bring death, yeah. yeah. So that, you know, they, they're, you know, they're telling them who the enemy is, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, but then there's also an, another great little addition as well where they're in, Pauling meets an officer or a work officer. I'm not sure. He's never really named of who he actually is. This sort of like IA officer who's who's mm. delegating the work um, to uh, Pauline. And behind Pauline, when she's sitting in his office, there is a uniforms and insignia of a media action organisation, like poster right behind her. And it's, it must have been hand-painted, but it's all the rank and like the, the badges and the, the sort of like the, the sleeve cuffs and all things like that of what they would wear. And I'm thinking... You know, the attention to detail is already brilliant, but for them to be really thinking about how an organisation would do, would have things like that just up on walls and things, it's just, it's, it's that extra level of detail. It's, Absolutely. I say to Matt, when when we were like researching and talking about the movie together before we recorded, like it's one of the few movies where occupation is the plot. It's not like ancillary to it. Yeah. So the SSGB, when it was filmed, when the BBC did an adaptation a few years ago, for me, it just felt like the, the fact that England had been invaded was just, just like a an backdrop, off, wasn't it, really? It was a backdrop to like a pretty middling detective story. But like this, it, it is just the plot. It's like how someone views occupation and how, and it's not even really how she feels about it at some points. It's just sort of, she's a little bit numb to it. It's just her transition, isn't it, from yeah. being a victim of occupation to accepting it. And yeah. going back to the posters, I think it's just such an, a simple, cheap, easy way of creating that mise-en-scene. Yeah. Um, five or six poster designs, you get them plastered up in a similar way to whatever was appearing in that book that they had That's it. of the yeah. occupation of Paris. And you've got and instantly all, that vibe. Yeah. And they're all obviously modelled on genuine posters. So mm. I'm looking at one now for the for the, the, the Dutch SS volunteers. And it's like, you know... Uh, in Dutch it reads um, you know which one of these two is the real Dutchman and it's like the you know like the collaborator and the non-collaborator yeah and then and there's like it looks like an SS volunteers going into battle and the the English uh you know mock-up poster is pretty much the same as that mm. so I just I just really like everything's really believable yeah again it's that word you know everything's really authentic and believable and that just adds that level of professionalism to the whole film and the level of believability but that's my alley pick, really. I mean, for mine to pick out of that huge plethora of interesting kit, I think, I think the Yag Panther is the one there, isn't it? That is the, the standout, and it's just it's it's such a surprise. I was I was amazed by it when I watched the film, but then as I was reading um, how it happened here, um, Brownlow's book, and it reads that they borrowed that and a half track from yeah. the Bobbington Tank Museum for for the morning is incredible. You know that they'll um, they're letting this probably about nineteen twenty year old making an amateur film 
come in yeah, and, exactly. and borrow a, a yeah. huge armored vehicle. It's and they didn't, well, was it the half track? I remember re- listening to the to the director talking. He said, "Well, the half track didn't move, so we had to tow it." Yeah, yeah. There's some great back um, behind the scenes footage of it being towed through the, through a village, and all the lads are just sat in the back of it, and there's a tow. <laughs> yeah, it looks good. It looks great. But yeah, that Jagdpanther is really imposing, isn't it? It's huge. It shows the might of the German army at that time without telling you. Definitely. And there's, there's actual. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Full professional productions that would have killed to get that kind of gotcha. armor on, on, a, on a set. But I, th- I think time to move on to fave scenes. I think so. There's so many standout sequences in the film that I can't really just pick one. So I'm going to be greedy mm. this week and pick a couple. Yeah, like my whole film is my favourite bit this week. I genuinely really love this one. It's, it's rare that you get a film, even an amateur film, where you go, it really works quite well. We've already talked about that beginning of seeing the Nazification of Britain with Pauline's walk through London and you know seeing the ghetto, etc., once we get through that scene of her being recruited by uh, the IA officer, mm. she goes into this training montage, which is like something straight out of um, the way ahead. Training montages where she's dressed up in black battle dress and jack boots. And she's running through rubble with stretchers and, you know, doing um, anatomy lessons, which she doesn't need because she's a district nurse, but she's redoing them anyway. Well, they say they're going to send you on a refresher course. Yeah. But then it's just clear that the, re- the refresher course is an indoctrination into the union of fascists. Absolutely, because we get that big speech, don't we? Super interesting in the period this is being made where civil defence is becoming a thing again. And all of that training, you know, apart from the indoctrination and the shooting of Webleys, which is a bit weird for a you know, paramedic, basically, what she's training to be. It's so interesting that they show them moving through rubble and training on ambulances, which is all sort of stuff that a lot of people would have been familiar with from um, wardens during the war, ARP, fire brigade, um, auxiliary medical corps, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then the civil defense stuff that was beginning to start up again in the late 50s, early 60s. So you've, you've got little touchstones that people would recognize from the audience of the period of when it came out in 64. But I, I just really like the way that it shows her sort of transition into going from reluctantly being 
an occupied uh, citizen mm. to accepting occupation. She and just there's softens. even scenes where she's kind of like, "Is this? This does make a bit of sense." Yeah, she kind of just softens to their ideas. I don't think she lumps in all of her views, but she certainly just. Mm. She's like, okay, I kind of, you know, you can see her sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that could make sense there. There's two distinct scenes where they're on a fire line firing a 38 Webley. They're very reluctant at the beginning, and then, you know, by the end of the montage, they're just blasting away with it, and, and you yeah. think, they're supposed to be medical orderlies. Like, why are they learning to shoot? Mm. It just kind of makes you wonder what role that the IA are going to thrust these people into. So I, I think that montage kicks off a lot of tropes, Yes. Um, within, you know, sort of filmmaking of those kind of training sequences. But it works really well. You know, background of like thumping German marching music again. And, and you get the speeches, don't you? And you get to learn more about IA, IA's actual stance on mm-hmm. things. It's like, oh, okay, you just, that's just a, you're just fascists then. You're just yeah. a fascist regime. You know, you're the, you're, the, you're the National Socialist Party with a different different coat on. You know, it's, all, it's very like that, isn't it? It is, and it's it's that scene and a couple of others where there's um, the marching band, oh, uh, yes. the German marching band is moving through London, and then there's also these great, it's another montage, uh, great sequences where there is uh, just Germans on R and R, various tourist spots around London, uh, Albert Hall, um, Trafalgar Square, etc., and they're getting snapped in front of things, and mm. they're just like pointing to stuff, and it's it's very much like that scene in Red Dawn where. The the, um, the Russians go up on on the like the scenic drive in the national park and they're like yeah. getting a photograph in front of the just echoes the Nazis in Paris, doesn't yeah, it? It does. It's that, it does. it's that thing. I assume that you know because it says that London is like a demilitarized city, and you're like, well, yeah, it's just it's just a retreat now, isn't it? It's just like a yeah. it's another capital in Germania, or they were going to call it, you know, what they were going to call the Greater Reich or whatever. It's just another. Another nice little place to visit if you're on R and R from the Eastern Front. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's your fave scene, Rob? After that montage that you were talking about, we get a little scene where Pauline's just trying to relax in the what I assume is like the their like rest house or like their clubhouse or something. Yeah. Like yeah, a, their like a, bar like a mess or head offices, like reading room not, type thing, isn't it? Yeah. She's trying to read, and you know all the books are all the books are IA slant on them, or they're like British version of the Spiegel. I love the little scene in one of the montages where they, it walks past a um, newsstand and it's got all of the German publications. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Where it would have so, been like War Illustrated and stuff. It's it's Nazi publications. It's yeah, kind it's of the like, signal. It's like the signal, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, she puts on the radio um, and her friend's like, oh, and it's like a, it's, now it's like, it's like a party political broadcast yes. from, from the leader, you know, and you're like, okay, it's not really explained to me, but it's clearly Hitler, you know, having a bit <laughs> She of- turns it off. But then they go to the cinema. We get a whole newsreel played for us, um, like a uh, like a recreation of what a, a German newsreel or propaganda piece would have been made for British consumption. And we get the whole thing from beginning to end. And it's called Mirror on the World. So the film is how England came to be occupied by the Germans from a German point of view, which is yeah. insanely a weird notion to what. It's jarring, isn't it? Very jarring, but very very sort of believable from a nazi propaganda machine mm. point of view it all it always sounds uneasy but if you if you can look at it step if you step back from it it does make a lot of sense but in a sort well, the of the spin sinister, on it is is very clever yeah but it's all done like sort of sinister 
Lee. You're not sure if what you're watching is real or recreated for the camera or so, so it starts by saying, you know, you know, Anglo-German friendship has been there since the days of Waterloo. And, you know, we've always been friends, but the propagandists in the First World War, they tried to ruin it. But yeah. the men came together at Christmas time and had a football match and were all friends and, and they knew what was right. They knew we were friends. Yeah. And you get this like, oh, the, the news cameras captured it perfectly. And it's like lads shaking hands in no man's land. But then I was thinking no that's not right because there's no film of that you know mm-hmm. there's no they've recreated that haven't they that's the that's that's the you know propaganda slant there it's all very sinister it puts you sort of on edge you know they're controlling the narrative they're saying that it was it was the corrupt government of, of england that made the war happen and we're the liberators and we're freeing you from your you know your bolshevik shackles and all this sort of thing you're like jesus this is all very sort of on the nose yeah, um, and it, it's all it, they they blame the, the the British government for slowing the war effort against the the dreaded Bolsheviks in the east yeah, the for holding on longer than they should have yeah. surrendered and joined the the war effort against the Bolsheviks. That That's kind of thing, it. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're the only people that have replaced with your government with a government that works. Um, you know, and we've got, we've set up the legions and they've gone to fight communism. Isn't everything wonderful? But then there's these other little sinister things that are dropped in. And, and I think they just dropped in. It's like, oh my God, like, really? That It's like a blink and you'll miss it thing where they mm-hmm. sort of go, oh, you know, we've reinvented this. We've reintroduced this. Oh, we've dealt with the Jewish problem, but oh, there's a labour there's labor force now so you can get a job. And it's like, hang on a minute, what, you did what? Yeah. yeah. Oh, hang on. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, like, they've just openly admitted that they've started the, 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 you know, they started a Holocaust here. And I'm like, oh my God, that's just... A flippant remark yeah but when you really delved into it it's just so sinister and horrible and sort of just nonchalant like it's nothing it's it's completely horrible but then the way that pauline views it she's just sitting there watching it like oh okay she's just sort of just like mm, okay. it's passive isn't it she's Very, just a, just someone yeah. sat in the cinema listening watching the news as, as anyone would have done mm, exactly yeah but the way that the movie is shot as well it's shot on 16 millimeter film reel. So yeah. it feels most of real. It. Most, most of it, of it is, is yeah. yeah. And well, well, I, it doesn't actually say in the book, but it I reckon probably maybe a third or a quarter of it is on 16 mil. Mm. And then they get some 35 millimeter, which um was donated by Stanley Kubrick of all yeah, people. Which is incredible, another, isn't it? an mm. incredible little piece of trivia from this film. Just to move away from the newsreel for a second and, and explain the Kubrick connection. Brownlow ran into him at a cinema in London and got talking to him about Path to Glory. He was basically just gushing about Path to Glory and how much he enjoyed it, um, which is a great movie. And must have mentioned his own film and Kubrick said, how are you doing for film stock? And Brownlow admits that 35 mil goes through pretty quick. And Kubrick says, well, here's what you do. You call my secretary and ask her for the the short ends of our reels from Dr. Strangelove. So... At least half or maybe two thirds of this movie is shot on leftover um, film stock from Doctor Strangelove. It's incredible. I mean, without that donation, the film probably wouldn't have been finished. Did he say he was worried that he'd have like you know superimposed Peter Sellers yeah. all the way through it if he used the footage or something? Yeah, double exposed Peter Sellers. <laughs> yeah, he was really worried about it. To bring us back to the newsreel, it's how you do exposition, isn't it? Mm. In a movie like this, you don't need people to go. 
I'm the Nazi's horrible. Oh, I'm the Nazi's great. You don't need people to say that. No. This movie does it all for you in a way that you can just accept because it's a mo- it's a movie within a movie. Yeah, and you've got that great little bit of um, what looks like newsreel from a, an Oswald Mo- Mosley sort of speech, and it, you get this Cable Street vibe where there's a big scuffle, yes. and that was all filmed on a 1922 16 millimeter hand cranked um, camera, which they loaned from the BBC. Oh, wow. For the very purposes of creating that sort of 16 millimeter film stock vibe, mm. um, with the clunky, you know, having to, to crank it as you're moving. Yeah, that guy Just, really looked like Mosley. I thought that was real footage then. He did. And I think he was like a production assistant from the same company that um, Brownlow worked in. According to the oh, book. Right. not Mosley himself, you mean? No, he <laughs> just really like, looks yeah. like it. He just he the does, black shirts and, and the the um, the back stand on the back of a truck, and yeah, 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 the flags behind him. It just worked really well it did look really real didn't it i think that's another thing that that whole news if you found that on youtube and and it was just in in its own little bit you'd Mm. think it was real you know take it out of the context of the film it does feel real but then that feeds into this whole fascinating little scene where pauline's in the back in the clubhouse after they've i assume after they've seen the movie and they're talking to these two old sweats old Mm. sweat sort of fascists original black shirts genuine right wingers in they're talking openly but they're doing it within the context of the movie and i feel that the the cast are just asking them questions so this this bit of the movie was actually taken out by united artists because it it was there's about seven minutes that were cut out yeah well luckily brownlow got the rights back um to the film so we managed to get it put back in okay but that scene is just really interesting you know hearing just hearing how people who actually believe that sort of thing it's really disturbing it is really disturbing because we've got these two guys which are clearly fascist Mm. and it's a it's a super controversial scene yes um when it when the film came out when it was initially screened um to festivals and reviewers etc this scene was still in the film before united artists uh, picked it up and it caused a massive bit of controversy amongst Britain's uh, Jewish community, naturally, um, who, who felt that that scene in particular was pretty anti-Semitic. Oh, um, yeah, without I can understand why. <laughs> yeah. Um, because you've got these two guys who are talking about sending Jews to Madagascar. Quite clearly, they would prefer not to be sending them anywhere and just yeah. you know, killing all of them. And these are real people. And apparently, according to the book, Mollo and Brownlow met these guys through looking for kit to put into the films. And unsurprisingly, some of these British fascists had decent collections of of surplus Nazi kit, which Mm -hmm. you can understand they might do. They got to know them. And in the book, Brownlow talks about how uncomfortable it was, you know, getting on quite well with some of these people but then at certain points in in their you know their relationship they'd be go around to their house to to collect something and they'd be reminded and they they twig that they're actually fascists yeah but that that comes into this whole wider thing that i find so fascinating about this film where they almost kind of naively touch and become fascinated by the nazification of britain and fascism during Mm. the war 
where they're bringing in former German officers, some of yeah. whom are SS. So you're dealing with people that seem on the surface of things as quite normal and you know pleasant. Mm. When in reality, these people have very dodgy views, to put it lightly. You know, these people yeah. are fucking Nazis. Mm. And it makes you feel very uncomfortable watching the film, knowing that those two gentlemen are actual fascists. Yeah. And knowing that a lot of the little bits of you know, scenes that were shot in certain parts of the film were made with the assistance of, of former Nazi officers and SS members. And you, it does make you wonder what the motivation of, of Mollo and Brownlow was. But I think having read the book, you get a sense that they're looking to sort of allow the, the, these fascists to sort of talk themselves into their own grave. Okay. They're, they're allowing them to sort of share their views openly for, for everyone viewing the film to be like, fuck me, these people are abhorrent, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's quite clear. Sort of because... like a, like, sorry, like a war game-esque sort of thing where you present all the facts to then say, hmm. isn't that fucking shit? Yeah, let's yeah. not have that, please. That's what I got from yeah. it. There's that bit where one, one of them is sort of talks about euthanasia and he talks about it as like a, a medical procedure and a doctor does it every day, cutting off dead tissue. Mm. Uh, which yeah foreshadows the end of the movie which you don't know when you when you're watching that scene if on the first watch you don't know what's coming brings into the movie a sort of sense of well if you're going to be part of this ia organization then you better be damn well fucking clued up on what they're doing in the background then this is what i was going to say in final thoughts but i think it makes sense to say it now i think the movie for me in my opinion at least presents both sides of the coin it's like, would you do you want to collaborate? And do you want to know what you're collaborating with? Yeah. Or do you want to resist and take the chances of being killed or captured or whatever? That's how the original trailer sort of posits it, isn't it? It asks you those questions. And then there's this horrible middle ground where you're just going to go along with whatever happens mm. and you're just going to tunnel vision it and get on with your life. Yeah. In the movie, it does it shows all three of those things. At the end, it shows you what the resistance movement is going to be like it shows you what the start it shows you how what living in that is like and then in the middle it shows you what being in it is like mm. yeah. so, so i don't actually think the movie really poises it as a good or bad thing no but i think it's asking us as the audience what, what do we think and what would we do yeah it, it, that's exactly it i think and heaven forbid we ever have to make that choice because I think it's so such a difficult position. And you can see Pauline all the way through it where she's she thinks she's sussed it and then something will happen and then she's at and she's really not sure by using it an amateur actor. I think she herself is thinking about these things on a more of a moral level than perhaps an actor would because you think about it as a job, you think mm. about it as a script. But maybe perhaps the way the movie was made and it's sort of embedding themselves with these sort of people you actually get to think about it more than yeah. you would on another sort of set you know so i think that from a moral point of view the movie is so interesting well her face throughout that scene is is really fascinating Very pensive it she's there positing mm. questions and at one point the two nazis they're arguing with each other about how they would deal with certain jews that have skills and one of them is being pragmatic air quotes and saying that they have skills and you know we can use them. Whereas the other one's saying, well, I don't want to use their skills. They should all be sent to Madagascar. Yeah. And that that in itself is is shocking. That, that it is. 
these two have got conflicting views. Mm. But I think that whole scene is really interesting that they're trying to show these people's opinions in the broad you know, light of day. In the book, Brownlow describes them going to a, uh, a rally of Oswald Mosley's. And wow. it makes you wonder, you're watching this film where it's two fascists on screen and you have to wonder about their motivation to go to that kind of rally. Mm. But Brownlow does make it clear in the book that he and Mollo did challenge in a question and answer session some of the things that yeah. Mosley was saying about Africa and, and uh, how we no longer oppose Jews. I mean, I guess it's just it's a mark of a good filmmaker if you're doing research, like an actor preparing for a role. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're preparing to play someone like that, then you might go and find out what it's like to be on those rallies. So again, it's like more more props to them for actually going to something like that. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think it is uh, another mark of that perhaps naive fascination where they've been so, you know, interested in trying to get into into this mindset of why these people would do that. They, they thought they would go to this event, but yeah. And I think my favourite scene is actually the one that follows that, and it's the, it's with Sebastian Shaw's character, the Doctor. When Pauline reaches London, she goes and visits two old friends that she hasn't seen since probably 1940, and she pays a visit to them, and she takes off her coat, and she's got her IA uniform on, and they are aghast. Yeah, they um, are. They... they are clearly leaning towards the partisan sort of mindset, but they're, they're a family. They have a young daughter. They can't really do much. Um, on another subsequent visit uh, where this scene occurs, Pauline arrives and they're not too pleased to see it because they have a wounded partisan um, in their flat that they're trying to you know tend to. And we get this really interesting conversation between Pauline and the doctor and Sebastian Shaw's character to me, it seems that he's doing a rebuttal to everything that was occurring in that scene where the fascists are laying out their views. Yes. He talks about how fascist uh, tendencies have to be treated as a disease. He talks about the terrible thing about, I think the exact line is, the appalling thing about fascism is that you have to use fascist methods to fight it. And he's quite clearly coming down to the sort of partisan side of um, things. And Pauline says, well, I thought that way too until all of my friends were killed by partisans. And that made me think that neither side is as good as the other. Mm. And then Shaw's line about using fascist methods to fight fascism is another piece of foreshadowing to that scene at the end. Um, with the surrender that you mentioned earlier, Rob, um, where the, the partisans shoot a number of uh, Germans that have surrendered, it just shows that humans are capable of a lot. Mm. And I think Shaw's little monologue in that scene is, is a powerful little rebuttal mm. to some yeah. of the, you know, the, the very unpleasant stuff that the, the fascists were saying after the cinema scene. It's all choices, isn't it? It's all choices mm. that people make where they like, you know, not necessarily what their real allegiance, allegiances yeah. are, rather what they're just going to do to get through it. You could just pick any scene from this movie and, it, and it's a good scene to analyse. There's, so there's so many, isn't there, that just work really well. But yeah, I think that scene with, with Shaw is, is my favourite. Hello, I'm Al Murray, and you're listening to Fighting on Film, the world's number one war film podcast. 
think we should wrap up with final thoughts like we always do. I've thoroughly really enjoyed this movie. But a fascinating film because when, when have you ever gotten like a, a big hour and a half long what if movie? You know, it's like when we were talking about the BAOR films, it's, it's that what if thing that is interesting. I find that inter- on a certain level, I find it very, very interesting. And I just wish there was a sequel that was all about the point of view of the resistance. Yeah, I mean, one of my criticisms of the film is that it just ends too soon. I want to know what happens. I suppose we can just briefly run over, you know, towards the end of the end of the plot there. Pauline is transferred to a hospital uh, in the countryside, and it seems like the most beautiful, idyllic place imaginable. Um, yeah, it's like something at a heartbeat almost, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, she's driven there from the station. It's a big country house. It's a TB hospital. Uh, the staff are all wearing, you know, actual nurses' uniforms rather than battle dress. Uh, and she gets a nice comfy bed. And she gets to be a proper nurse again. She's not an orderly and she's not, you know, running around rubble. She's being, a, she's going to be a proper nurse. Yeah. So she gets to make beds and, and get instruments ready and, and that sort of thing. And she's very pleased to be back into, you know, what seems like a normal hospital. Mm. And all is not as it seems. And we get that foreshadowing of the, the euthanasia conversation that she had with the fascists. Yes. Um, in the in Brownlow's book, he talks about how he took inspiration for this part of the film. They didn't really know um, what they were going to do in the third act, and it's basically pretty much based on accounts from the Hadamar trial, which was um, a trial based on attendants that worked at a mental hospital, right? Um, in I, I believe Germany, um, who had. Once, once all of their patients had been killed, they continued to be a euthanasia center, basically. And that is pretty much what we get in this idyllic country hospital. It's, a, it's, it's an old TB hospital, which is, there's, there's one literally maybe like four or five miles away from me. Oh, wow. An old TB hospital. Um, so it, you know, kind of, kind of came home for me. I was like, wow, she's taken advantage of. They, yes. They don't explain what is going on. Uh, they put up a facade and this truckload of Polish laborers that have been working uh, at a building a new harbor in, I think, Chroma is mentioned. Um, and they're all ushered in into these nice, crisp, clean beds, made comfortable, put into nightgowns. Um, and then the pretense is that they're going to have a, an infectious diseases inoculation. Yep. And they begin administering this and then they hand it over to Pauline and say, can you finish this off, please, nurse? And she does. And there's a, there's a heart-rending little scene with a little boy um, who is handed a stuffed toy by the matron before she leaves, knowing what they're doing. Mm. Obviously, we don't know as a viewer. We don't know. We're like Pauline. We don't know what the hell's going on. We're like, oh, she's finally in this nice hospital. Where's this going? The next morning, you know, she clocks off. Next morning, she comes down on early rounds. The beds are empty. Mm. No one's about. And they're they're looking around. She's looking around, sorry, for um, a member of staff, for the nurse, the matron, the doctor, whatever. Um, She walks through the gardens and then behind some trees, the groundskeepers are digging a pit to bury the Polish. um, Well, there's shallow graves, isn't it? Shallow graves. Yeah. Yeah to bury the Polish um, laborers. And you realize she's killed them all. 
does a, like a, a smash cut to hair on the train, handcuffed to a, a Nazi officer. And then we get those two little Vox Pops at the nurse. And That's the nature explains, well, we were always a TB hospital and the authorities wanted us to keep up the pretense. And then another nurse says, well, if I'd refused, they would have sent me to a concentration camp. Yeah. And again, it's hitting you with those questions of what the hell would you do if you were posed in that situation? Only few times in the film where euthanasia, concentration camps, genocide. It's the only parts of the movie that are ever sort of hinted on it, mm. but it's very hard hitting. Powerful. And then to cut from that, the resistance blow up the train she's on. And then she finds yeah. herself with the resistance as a nurse for them. And then you get that whole bit with the British Liberation Army and stuff. And then the movie, the film just ends. Mm. Just it's her just administering patience again. It mirrors her whole experience throughout the whole film. You know, she's in one place. She's in another place, then she ends up in another place. I like that because it never never settles into one thing enough for you to start making a formed opinion mm. on what you would do or how you feel about the situation. It lets you do it in the credits or it lets yeah. you do it on the walk home from the cinema. And I really like that. I think, I think Paulie Murray's performance is so nuanced. It's such a shame that she never felt like doing it again because... Mm. She's so believable. She's, so, she's very meek. She is very softly spoken. She feels like a real person. You can't imagine being thrust into that situation, which is, that's what the film does. It posits, what would you do? Mm. And she portrays someone who is pretty much dumbfounded. She's seen a lot of her friends get murdered at the beginning of the film. Yeah. She gets to London. There's a great little close-up of her shabby shoes on the floor. And then following her graduation from the IA, there's a little scene on a bus yeah. where she's looking down at her feet and she's wearing shiny black shoes and she's, she's pleased. She's, you know, she's got a yeah. uniform, she's got a job, she's nursing again. Yeah. Um, and then we get that, you know, disquieting scene with the, with the fascists and uh, explaining their views. And then she has the confrontation with Shaw's character and she's second guessing again. And I just like the way this film walks you through her thought processes mm. um, and it, and the transition she makes from accepting occupation to then being so shocked about what she's been tricked into doing in the hospital yeah. um, that she is willing to, to see herself sent to a concentration camp by at the, the implication is that, you know, she's handcuffed to a German officer and that's going to be her fate. Yeah. Um, and there's a little scene uh, as she gets into a, a, a Kubelwagen to go off to the aid station, she takes off her armband. It's very, very quick. You don't really notice it, but I watched it a couple of times and I noticed that she just takes that off and drops it to one side as she gets in to go and work at the aid station. Mm. Yeah, I just think there's so many little aspects of this film that really lift it above what you would expect from an amateur film. It's all very nuanced. Um it's a really affecting film. It's like it didn't harass me as much as the war game did, but it certainly has that same uneasy feeling of, you know, well, gosh, what would I, how do I feel about all these things that are, are poised? You know, what's my opinion? What's my view on it? It's a movie that wants you to think for a, a movie about the effects of war rather than war itself. I think it's, it's a really good one. <laughs> I don't know what else is. I can it say. Really is. You know, it's, 
it should be up there. I mean, I know the BFI did a a, a, a remastered Blu-ray release, didn't they, a few years ago? Um, but it, it should be up there, viewed in the same way that the War Games viewed it as an anti an anti nuclear war film. This movie should maybe be poised as an, an anti fascist movie. Well, it poses the question: Is what would you do? That's it. That's the the basic question. Yeah, it's the most the base thing of how would you react to being thrust into that situation? Exactly. It aspires so high and it hits so many marks. It's not a perfect film, obviously. The story of its production alone is almost as interesting as the film itself. You've got people mm. like Kevin Brownlow, who goes on to be a respected historian of cinema. Um, he edits The Charge of the Light Brigade in 68. He makes a film about Winstanley and the Diggers. You've got Peter Sushitsky, who goes on to be a cinematographer in films made by Peter Watkins, David Cronenberg, UX on Empire Strikes Back. Molo, Andrew Molo, goes on to work as a consultant on Dr. Zhivago. The Eagle has landed the pianist downfall. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. production designer on all of the Sharp films. It's incredible. And then you've got Peter Watkins in the background as, as an uncredited production assistant. I would definitely encourage everyone to look into the production of the film. And I think also look into the reaction of um, contemporary reviewers to that anti-Semitic accusation and mm. the decision to remove that scene. I don't, I don't think the film wouldn't work without that scene. I think it would work quite well. There's enough in that newsreel um, to suggest the euthanasia and the, the attitudes of the fascists that would balance well with what Shaw's character has to say in that discussion with Pauline. But I, I do think that that extended scene of the chat with the fascists probably lays out their opinions a little more broadly that people can see and get an idea of. And it's a warning, isn't it, really? That scene is yeah, a warning is. of, of yeah. these people still exist. These are opinions that you know were pervasive then and are now. And yeah. then we have Shaw's reaction to this, and we can form our own opinions yeah, um, of from, from watching that discussion. Absolutely fascinating film. And I'm so glad that the patrons decided to pick this one because this is the forerunner. This comes before Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle. This is before um, SSGB. This is before a whole plethora of sort of like what if occupation scenarios, yeah. Scenario like literature and, and films and books and so on and such. And it's just a, I, not many people seem to know about it. Like I, I, I no. spoke to a few friends and they, they were like, no, I've never heard of it. But if you were a fan of the war game, if you were a fan of Culloden, this will be yeah. right up your alley. And we really would say, seek it out. It's one I've been really wanting to do for a while now. So I'm, I'm glad we've, we've finally done it. So as you might have seen on the Twitter, next week, we are going to be starting Dirty Dozen December. We are. We're diving in with our grease guns, mm. getting in with some criminal sorts and we are going to be tackling not one but four dirty dozen films over the course of december didn't even know they made that many yeah i didn't until we we, we had this idea like four months ago where i was like what should we do for december and the alliteration <laughs> won out i would have happily have done regal's dare which is an ultimate christmas war movie for me anyway there's been a few twitter followers that have been like when are you doing it we're like we just I had know, to i know that play it cool because we didn't want to give away the game away we want we i want to do it too but i think day doesn't december is going to be on par with it i think yeah it's gonna be hella fun we're gonna have some um giveaways and a couple of other special little things which we'll let you know about in the next week or two i think 
Yeah, keep your eyes peeled on the Twitter and the Facebook. And we've got a great guest for our first Dirty Dozen December episode. Uh, Dwayne Epstein, who wrote a book about Lee Marvin's career. So stay tuned um, next week for all that. So as always, thank you so much for listening. You can find out more about Fighting On Film at fightingonfilm.com. You can follow us on Twitter at, at fightingonfilm. And we are also on Facebook. Leave a like or a review on whatever platform that you're listening on. And thank you again for joining us. Bye, guys. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.